my mouth really does feel dry and, and gross right now. <laughs> Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Habits. We are in part three in home education. Yeah, last week we got through the end of part two, and we had... We had Kara on our show from at Letters to Lyra. So if you've not checked that one out yet, go have a listen. It was a fun conversation with her. The audio was a bit wonky because I didn't prepare at all on the uh, technical side. But it was it was a good conversation and it was fun. And if you've not gone and followed her on Instagram, if you're an Instagram person, then you should totally do so because she's a pretty cool follow. But this week... We're getting into the next chapter. No, next part. The next part, right? We finished part two, and we're moving on to part three, which is habit is ten natures. So you know what she did this first page? She summed up everything she's written so far. It took me a minute to to realize that. In her, you know, we're on page 96. She just summed up 95 pages worth in two paragraphs. In two paragraphs, in three succinct points, she says, she states her desire. She says, what I desire is to set before the reader a method of education based upon natural law. Which is in the preface, word for word, on page XVI. So, page 16 of the preface. There you go. She says, in the first place, we have considered some of the conditions to be observed with a view to keep the brain in healthy working order. Which is part one. The consideration of out-of-door life and developing a method of education comes second in order, because my object is to show that the chief function of the child is to find out all he can about whatever comes under his notice. And that's part two, the mm-hmm. second part. And the next subject for consideration, part three, seems to me all the same to be very worthy of attention as striking the keynote of a reasonable method of education. You, you- you missed out her part. A rather dry psychopsychological. Oh, yeah. I love that. I mean, we're talking about habits now, which is a pretty big cornerstone of a Charlotte Mason education. And she calls it a rather dry psychopsychological one. Yeah. <laughs> she does. So did you look up at all this phrase, a habit is 10 natures? A little bit, but I mean, as she's saying, you know, it's basically everything that sermonizers are sermoning on. I've just, I've never heard that phrase before. You don't live a hundred years ago. What? No, I realize that. You don't get it every fourth Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is true. She, she does say that in here. I was accustomed to hear habit is 10 natures delivered from the pulpit on at least one Sunday out of four, but we'll get to that. So she starts out, she says, habit is ten natures. If I could but make others see with my eyes how much this saying should mean to the educator. How habit in the hands of the mother is as his wheel to the potter, his knife to the carver, the instrument by means of which she turns out the design she has already conceived in her brain. 
So habit, habit is not the education, but habit is a means of education, seems like. No, it's the tool. It's the tool. Thank you. The tool of the education or the tool of the educator to educate. Mm-hmm. It was, it's an interesting, an interesting analogy there. The formation of habits is education. Education is the formation of habits. And she says, the instrument is as necessary as the material or the design. But the, the material's there already. It's not, it's not that it's something pulled out of thin air. Right. That which has become the dominant idea of one person's life, if it be launched suddenly at another, conveys no very depth very great depth or weight of meaning to the second person. He wants to get at it by degrees to see the steps by which the other has traveled. And this is what she's about to do. When when somebody has an epiphany, when when something strikes them and they're so excited about it and they were like, I've got to tell everyone. This is amazing. This is awesome. And they look at them and go, huh? <laughs> and this matters why? That's... That's happened to me. Has that, it happened to you? Yeah. Okay. But, Most, mostly with you, but yeah. But but she, she's going, okay, I'm so excited that I've discovered habits as a tool in my education toolbox. But I know that you're not quite there yet because you don't have the experiences I have had and the thought process that I've... So let me walk you through my thought process here real quick. I, that's what I felt like. I, I felt and like... It's, it's exactly what she went to do. Yeah, I feel like the the next couple of pages is really her walking through a a logical step by step progression of why she thinks habits are so important, and why she thinks that habits are that tool of education, and that's what she does for the next two chapters, really, until we get to the the actual the laying down of lines of habit in chapter five. Which is part of why I split it up there. We're only going through chapters one through four today. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna walk through with with Charlotte Mason why habits are important and what it is they're supposed to do. And then next week we'll get to how to actually start laying them down with your children. Mm-hmm. So chapter two. The children have no self compelling power. So she starts talking about herself as a young teacher, which is kind of fun to see. Well, because everything we've had up until this time is, it, it seems like she's an old, she's an old hat at this. She's been doing it forever. She has her, her thoughts and her processes and all of that. Her processes. Processes, proceeds, whatever. I was fumbling over that word in my brain. So I was accustomed to hear habit as 10 natures from the pulpit. And I was enthusiastic about my work. It was a great thing to be a teacher. Everything, everything I can give is what the children need. And it's my fault if anything goes wrong, if the child does badly in school or out of it. There is no degree of responsibility to which youthful ardor was not equal. But nothing extraordinary happened. The children were good, on the whole, because they were children of parents who had brought themselves up. Or who had themselves been brought up with some care. And so they behaved much as it was their nature to. They kept their same faults. They kept their same virtues. And everyone got on just a little. Does that sound familiar? 
she talked about that a lot in parents and children. Yeah, it it definitely does. It it's the idea of that's that's what that's habit or not habit Her- heredity. That's, yeah, that's heredity. And there was a thought, there was a prevailing thought at the time that was, well, heredity is the only thing that matters in children. So all you need are good parents and the child will, I guess, by osmosis gain whatever they need. So just let the child alone, let it be, and the child will grow into whatever he or she is to become. Chapter eight of Parents and Children was the culture of character. Yeah. And we did episodes... 21 and 22 on that one. Oh, that was a long one. It was. So that was the heredity and habits combined. Interesting. But yeah, that's that's kind of what she's alluding to here. She said, okay, so if they're getting on, but I, I see it. I see it in them. Each In each one of them, they have the making of a noble character, of a fine mind. How can I lift them out of their little worlds? There has to be a lever somewhere. This horse-in-a-mill round of geography and French history and sums was no more than playing at education. For who remembers the scraps of knowledge he labored over as a child? Would not the application of a few hours later in life affect more than a year's drudgery at any one subject in childhood? If education is to secure the step-by-step progress of the individual and the race, it must mean something over and above the daily plodding at small tasks, which goes by the name. Yeah, and I can I can totally see where she's coming from with this one. The thought that later in life you learn things oh so much quicker. You retain you retain information so much better than you do as a child. So what takes the children a month to learn because they're children? might take me only an hour or a week. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the same thought in, you know, teaching the children the alphabet. Do you start at three, where it takes you a week to go through a single letter? Or do you just wait and start at five or six when you can be like, okay, here's A, here's B, here's C. Yeah. I, I Yeah. I take the waiting process because I don't have the patience to sit (laughs) and do the letter A all week. All week. So. But but there's something to be said for, I mean, there's something to be said for learning these things early, but there's also something to be said for waiting to when it's easy to learn something. Uh, We've talked about math any number of times, and math is one of those that if you don't get it, you don't get it as a child. A mastery topic. Right. But at some point, it just makes sense. And and the, the child is able to conceptualize numbers in a way that he hadn't before. Mm-hmm. So trying to force it on the child doesn't really work and or help. So I, what and so what she's saying here is that if if all there is to education is that that process of trying to teach a child who who's not that good at learning learning then the then, daily plotting at small tasks yeah then then what are we really doing here mm-hmm. and and how will it secure the progress of the individual and the race yeah how, how will this better mankind for us to be slowly plotting through geography french history sums etc well cuz that was a big thing that she talked about 
at the beginning of Parents and Children, book two, is she talks about how we're, as parents, we're coming to a realization that educating our children is hyper-important, and we're realizing that as we educate our children, they will grow to do they'll grow up to do bigger and greater things with their lives than we did. And then their children will grow to do greater and bigger things than them. And it'll be this generational upward spiral mm-hmm. of, of doing better and better and being better people and, and all of that. And so she's, I think that's what she's getting at here is this step-by-step drudgery. It's, it's it's not going to help us in that grand scheme. So what did she do? It's a good question. So she looked for guidance. Uh, she says, looking for guidance in the literature of education, I learned much from various sources, though I failed to find what seemed to me an authoritative guide. That is one whose thought embraced the possibilities contained in the human nature of a child and at the same time measured the scope of education. She saw how religious teaching helped the children. It gave them power and motives. It raised their desires towards the best things. And she saw how far law restrained from evil and love impelled towards good. So she looked towards religion. Well, she looked at, um, you said the literature of education. So she looked to education philosophy as well as observing religious teaching. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's she's watching the church at the same time as reading the educational fathers. Yes. As well as seeing what law does and how love impels towards good. Right. She's saying you know we but even with all of this we're still laboring at education in the dark. Mhm. You know, there's no sensible progress from year to year other than you know, you can do harder sums and read harder books. <laughs> I mean, what's why what where are we going at and she said why why isn't there why isn't something bigger and better why why are we just kind of muddling along she said consideration made the reason of the failure plain there was a warm glow of goodness at the heart of every one of the children but they were all incapable of steady effort because they had no strength of will no power to make themselves do that which they knew they ought to do. And that sounds that sounds really familiar. And and says here comes the function of parents and teachers. They should make the child do that he lacks in the pillar to power to compel himself. But it would be poor training to keep the child dependent on that personal influence. And it's the business of education to find some way of supplementing that weakness of will, which is the bane of most of us, <laughs> as well as of the children. Well, and then she goes on that children should be saved from the effort of decision. And this is something that I thought was really interesting. She says that the effort of decision is the most exhausting effort of life has been well said. And it surely is not just to leave the children all the labor of an effort of will, whether they have to choose between the right and the wrong. We need to we need to save our children from that that effort to make that choice that choice needs to not be a choice it just needs to be what they do that and decision fatigue is as she's addressing there exactly decision Which even more has been studied about decision fatigue yeah decision fatigue being the idea that as you go throughout the day 
the more decisions that you make, the the less good those decisions get to be. And that the the human mind is only capable of making some number of decisions before we lose our ability to think about those decisions arbitrarily. And we just start flipping a coin. Mm-hmm. Which is why you find a lot of a lot of very powerful people pre-doing their wardrobe or not even having wardrobe options. You just wear that shirt and those pants and we're done. Mm-hmm. And it's always the same. Or there's a rotation. Or you have a personal dresser who dresses you, who tells you what to wear. And you walk in and say, hey, what am I wearing? And they say, wear these. And you go, okay, I'm wearing these now. <laughs> Be great. Because they, they can't waste their mental faculties on those small decisions. They're not worth it. Mm-hmm. So we need to protect the children from that. Which is interesting because you think about giving children a, a autonomy over some of their life and some of their decisions. And and the the kind of push is to do that at an earlier, earlier age earlier and earlier age. Yeah. And that's overwhelming for a lot of children. Yeah, it can be, yeah. And and there there is there is good in giving them power over their lives, but it can be exhausting. Yes. So if you're giving them choices at the end of the day, probably not that great of an idea because they're done. That's true. They've they've lost the ability to make choices or or if you're uh, and something that we found is that when you give them when you give them lots and lots of choice they can't they can't choose a single thing like you put them in a room it. put them in a room full of toys and they can't find anything to do but put them in a room that has like two toys or two types of toys and they can find all kinds of things to do mm-hmm. so minimizing the number of options when giving children a choice oftentimes help them helps them to make a choice. Mm-hmm. So when you I, ask a child with, with clothes, I do, you know, do you want this shirt or this shirt with the, with the twins? Yeah. I don't, the older kids make their own decisions about clothes. I don't know when I dress them, I just, I look at their box and Hey, which, what do you want to wear? <laughs> Find a pair of pants and a shirt. I don't care. Yeah, that too. <laughs> But again, that's early in the day. That's at the mm-hmm. beginning of the day. And so that's a choice that they can make. It'd be interesting to to have them change clothes at the end of the day again. They do. They have to choose their jammies. And they're terrible at it. Yeah. They they can't find their jammies. And or 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 make a choice as to what they're going to wear. Unless Lily's following her sisters and wearing a nightgown. Wow. <laughs> oh man. But but again, at the same time, we need to train them out of that dependence, so right. so that um, they have the strength of will to do to make themselves do that which they know they ought to do. And I that I think I feel like that's I double underlined that the power to make themselves do that which they know they ought to do. Uh, that's that's where I think I'm falling down a lot right now and I can blame it on all sorts of things but there are things I would rather do and so I do those things instead Mm. 
as as opposed to what I ought to do. Those those things I know I ought to do. You mean you in your own personal life? Yep. Yep. You're you're making one choice instead of another because because the one choice is hard. Yep. I make the choice to sit and play a game on the Kindle and listen to a book as opposed to clean the kitchen. And I know I ought to do it. I know I ought to clean right. the kitchen because I need a clean kitchen for tomorrow and it's a job that needs to be done and it's part of my job as as a person who as an adult who lives in this house. Mm-hmm. I, it it's part of my job to clean the messes that get made in the kitchen. Right. It happens every day though. <laughs> and it gets so tiring. Yes. And so I make the decision to do that which I know I ought not be doing. Right. So. Because it's the easier choice. It's so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. So that's, yeah. that's one example. It is. And we want to raise our children to be better than ourselves. And that's part of it is that we want them to be, we want them to have an easier time making those hard choices day in, day out to do the things they ought to do and even to do them without needing to make a choice to do them. Mm-hmm. It just is what you do. Right. That's one thing that I, I am amazed and, and uh, with my mother is she does all of those things. She keeps a nice tidy house and that's just what she does always mm-hmm. that she does the dishes. She vacuums, she cleans the house, she picks up, those are things that she does on a daily basis. Before she sits down to rest. Yeah. And do the other things. Or if she is going to sit down to rest, it's a short rest. She knows it's going to be a short rest. She says, I'm going to sit down and read a book for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to put the book down and I'm going to go to work. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I do admire in her because she's so darn good at it. Mm-hmm. So, what is nature? Yeah, so she says, well, if habit is ten natures... Oh, we're on chapter three now. Right, So, and that's what is nature. But she said, so she's, she's moving on then, so uh, we figured out what... Did we talk about habits at all? No, we just, we're just talking about things. No, so, we're, we were talking about self-compelling power. Right, so now we're talking about what is nature, because if habit is ten natures, well, what is a nature? And she says, uh, and this is, this is where you says she... This is the the light bulb went on, and all of a sudden she had that aha moment. Mm-hmm. So she says, all persons are born with the same primary desires, that we all have the same instincts and appetites we are prepared to allow, but that, but that the principles of action which govern all men everywhere are primarily the same. And it's a little startling. When she says it's irrespective of race, country, or kindred. Yeah. Simply in the right of his birth as a human being. And this is what she's defining as nature. She says, everywhere is felt the desire of esteem. You missed the first one. Any fear or hope. What did I miss? She's going through a list. There's the desire for knowledge first. And then the desire of society. And then the desire of esteem. Oh, I missed that. So there, right. So there are three desires then. The desire of knowledge, which shows itself in the child's curiosity about things and his eager use of his eyes. And then the desire of society, which you can see in two babies presented to one another. And they're all agog with glee and friendliness. And then 
And then there's the desire of esteem. The desire of esteem. How fascinating. I the missed praise that completely. And <laughs> Goodness gracious. So it's those, it's those three things. The desire of knowledge, the desire of society, and the desire of esteem. And the desire of esteem is a wonderful power in the hands of the educator, which makes a word of praise or blame more powerful as a motive than any fear or hope of punishment or reward. The the carrot rather than the stick. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, the carrot and the stick. The the I'm sorry, let's back up. The esteem, the power to praise or blame, more powerful than the carrot or the stick. Right. So you've got those three desires, but you also have the same affections and passions. Joy and grief, love and resentment, benevolence, sympathy, fear, and much else are common to us all. So too of conscience, the sense of duty. So basically, you know, she she's boiling it down to what do humans want? So the most at the most base element. Mm-hmm. What desires do they have? What affections and passions do they have? So she goes through and talks about these desires that are common and the affections that are common in everyone. And then references Dr. Livingston, who basically said, you know, I only did one addition to the moral code of these Zambezi tribes was, you know, basically evil speaking, lying, hatred, disobedience to parents, neglect of them. Those are all known sins. But they were polygamists, and so he told them that they should only have one wife, and that was that was the extent of his moral teachings. That, that was the that one that changed it. That was the one. Interesting. Yeah, she says not only is a sense of duty common to mankind, but the deeper consciousness of God, however vague such consciousness may be. So then she says, then heredity comes in. And here, if you please, is ten natures: the child who's resentful, stubborn, reckless, because it's born in him. His mother's nature or his grandfather's? Yeah, and and it's true to a, to a certain extent that heredity plays a part in all of these things. But heredity is not the sole reason for why children grow up to be who they be. And that's definitely something she talks about ad nauseum. In, in parents and children. In parents and children. She, she talks about it in any number of chapters. She starts in chapter three. And talks about what Dr. Maudsley thinks about heredity. Right. So she talks about it there, but but she it, talks it about keeps it. Going. Right. It's a it's a constant theme throughout that book is the nature versus nurture debate. And it's something that comes up constantly. Miss Power Cobb is she was an Irish women's suffrage person. She was born in eighteen twenty two and died in nineteen oh four. So Apparently she was just a a great ball of energy. Interesting. So I could I can see this being just a like a, a colloquial type. Oh yeah, remember she said this? Uh-huh. The handwriting is traceable. There's gotcha. a there's a peculiar character that's traceable in five generations of her family. Yeah. So. Well, it it is it is true that children of artists tend to be more artistic. Is it because it's born in them, or is it because they're surrounded with it? Well, children of athletes <laughs> tend to be more athletic. Again, is it because they're they're born with it, or they grow up with it? And I think the right answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Some people are more more naturally physically talented than others. 
Some also have better training than others. And some also see their parents have a desire for some things that help them to also have a desire for those things. Many children of professional athletes try to be professional athletes. Well, here's nature with a twist. Confirmed, sealed, riveted, utterly proof against any attempt to alter or modify it. She's going to say no. (laughs) And also, physical conditions. The puny, feeble child and the sturdy urchin, who never ails, necessarily differ from each other in the strengths of their desires and emotions. So then, we have all of these things. Natural desires, affections, and emotions common with the race, tendencies which each family derives by descent, their own peculiarities which the individual owns to the constitution of the body and the brain, human nature. So that is, all of that is human nature. And it makes out for itself a strong case. So much so that we are inclined to think the best that can be done is to let it alone. To let every child develop unhindered according to the elements of character and the disposition that are in him. And she says, nope. Yeah. That's precisely what half of the parents in the world and three-fourths of the teacher are content to do. And what happens? What are the consequences? Well, (laughs) the consequences is that there's progress amongst the few whose parents have taken their education seriously. While the rest kind of stay where they were, no more, no better. Indeed, nature nature is acting as a heavy drag on them. And the fact is that they don't stay where they are. It's intangibly true that a child who is not being consistently, I'm sorry, who's not being constantly raised to a higher and higher platform will sink to a lower and lower. So there you go. She says, don't let them alone. Yeah, don't let them alone. Don't don't let them wallow. That's a that's a major fault if you're you as a parent are doing that. Wherefore, it is as much the parent's duty to educate his child into moral strength and purpose and intellectual activity as it is to feed and clothe him. And that in spite of that nature, if it may, must be so. So sometimes there's a somebody who will step in and make a man of a boy whose parents fail on this discipline. But This is a fortuitous aid which the educator is no way warranted to count upon. Yeah, that's more the exception than the rule. And back to parents and children again. What is the duty of parents? She talks about it in her chapter one. It rests with you, parents of young children, to be the saviors of society unto a thousand generations. Nothing else matters. And that's what she's definitely saying here, is that it is the job of the parent to educate the child. So then she backs up and comes back to her her lofty view. I was beginning to see my way, not yet out of the psychological difficulty that was blocking real education. But now, now I can put my finger on something. I, I that's, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> Come, keep coming with me. Keep coming with me and we're going to get there. The will of the child is pitifully feeble, weaker in the child, children of the weak, stronger in the children of the strong but hardly ever to be counted upon as a power in education. So their nature is extremely strong. Both the sum of what you are as a human being and the stock that you come from and your mental and physical constitution. It's strong. Very strong. And she says, well, that's, that's the problem before the educator. She says the problem of the educator 
is to give the child control over his own nature, to enable him to hold himself in hand as much as regard to the traits that we call good and as those as we call evil. That That's the job. But the human nature that's is... That's what life is. Yeah, but the human nature is so darn strong. How how do you do that? And then she has a, a section here where she, she jumps back and says, okay, yes, I'm looking for a human solution to this problem. But we do not always make enough of the fact that divine grace is exerted on the lines of enlightened human effort. So she she's she's coming back and saying we're we're yes, I, I divine grace, divine guidance is a big part of this, but but that's not what I'm looking at right now. That's not what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> Let's push that to the side because as as it's and I, I think this is a I don't know if it's a belief of the times or if it was just more prevalent at the time. It's it's the idea of God helps them who helps themselves type thing. Gotcha. It, that's what it sounds like to me. I could believe it. So. So then, so that was that was a short aside there, to say yes, divine grace works, but also let's not wholly rely on just that and then also do whatever we want. And so she keeps on. That's what too many Christian parents expect. They let a child grow free as the wild bramble, putting forth unchecked whatever is in him. The thorn, the coarse flower, the insepid fruit. Trusting that God will prune and dig and prop up the wayward branches. And this was, this was also in Parents and Children. That the poor man endures anguish, is torn asunder by the parts, process of recovery which his parents might have spared him had they trained the early shoots which develop by and by into the character of their children, of their child. Right. Emphasis being on man and child there. Exactly. Yeah, that, that by by denying their children a good upbringing, as, as adults, their children are going to have a harder time of things because they have to fight those fights on a daily basis, like we were talking about before with with the uh, the... Effort of decision. Mm-hmm. More of a setting them up for failure type thing. Right. So, uh, maybe not failure, but setting them up for some hard lessons later in life. Yeah. Forcing them to, to learn and to work through those in ways that aren't optimal. She says, nature then, strong as it is, is not invincible. And at her best, nature is not to be permitted to ride rampant. Bit and bridle, hand and voice will get the utmost of endeavor out of her if the training or for training be taken in hand in time. But let nature run wild like the fairest ponies, and not spur nor whip will break her in. So nature, like she said earlier, nature is hugely strong. It's incalculably strong. Well, and just looking back and, and going through, she she says, Okay, we have an instrument. We're going to back up. We're going to see that children don't have the power to compel themselves. We're going to see what nature is. And now she's going to get into what habit is. Yeah. So she says habit is 10 natures. Well, if that's true, strong as nature is, habit is not only as strong, but 10 times as strong. Because if you make, if you turn that into a math sentence, it's habit equals 10 times nature. So habit is therefore 10 times stronger than nature. So here then we have a stronger, we have a, 
Here, then, we have a stronger than he. That's a weird sentence. He. Here, then, have we oh, a ha- stronger okay. than he. So a stronger thing than he, nature. Yeah, it's a weird sentence. Anyway, we have a stronger thing than nature, which is habit, to overcome the strong man armed. Wow. Which is nature. Wait, wait a sentence. Oh, Oof. there's one later where, it, you know, how Paul has all his run-on sentences. She's got one coming up. And I just read it and went, okay, Paul. <laughs> oh, it was in it was in the out-of-door life when she summarized her part two. That's one sentence. Oh, yeah. So moving into habits then. Habits... Habit runs on the lines of nature. The cowardly, tri- the cowardly child habitually lies that he may escape blame. The loving child has a hundred endearing habits. The good-natured child has a habit of giving. The selfish child a habit of keeping. Habit, working thus according to nature, is simply nature in action, growing strong by exercise. But habit, to be the lever to lift the child must work contrary to nature or at any rate independent of her or specifically of her nature right independent yes so so if we're going to have habits help fix our nature then the habit has to be counter to our nature if it's my nature to be lazy and sleep in in the morning the habit must be to wake up in the morning and get up and get going Mm-hmm. Even though that's contrary to my nature, because objects at rest. Well, yeah, that's me. <laughs> but if the if the habit and the nature are are together, then then nothing is going to change. She talks about the children who, the examples crowd in upon ourselves as we look at as we start looking for habits along these lines. Uh, well, there's children who are trained to be careful, who never soil their clothes. Those trained in reticent habits who don't speak of things that are happening at home. And answer people with indiscreet questions with, I don't know. There are children brought up in courteous habits who make way for their elders and for the poor woman with the basket. And there are children who go trained in grudging habits who are never offering to yield to go or to do. So you can see both the good habits and the bad habits as they're trained because they're formed involuntarily. Yeah. That there are and will be habits trained in your children. They are what their mothers have brought them up to do. And as a matter of fact, there is nothing which a mother can bring cannot bring her child up to do. The mother has her views, has her things that she trains them in, and there she has the things that she draws the line and says, No, this is this is the way it's done. Right. Well, and as uh, the the children are going to learn that and they will fall into those habits. Mm-hmm. And some of those are good and some of them can be bad. Well, and we've worked to do the habit of saying thank you. Yeah. that That's been something we've trained and poured into our children. Somebody does something for you, you say thank you. Mm-hmm. Somebody does something for you, you say thank you. <laughs> It's a constant thing in our home. It, it is. And and a lot of the times they say it now just because they do. Mm-hmm. That's what they do now. Yeah. So she says that habit forces nature into new channels. The extraordinary power of habit in forcing nature into new channels hardly requires illustration. And then she talks about it for another hour. 
<laughs> she says, we only have to see the small boy at, a, boy at a circus riding two barebacked ponies with a foot on the back of each or a pantomime fairy dancing on air or a clown behaving like an India, rub, India rubber. Oh, rubber wasn't a thing yet. India rubber. <laughs> a clown behaving like a rubber ball. <laughs> bouncing. He's he's bouncing because it's India. Anyway. Uh, or any thousand feats of skill and dexterity which we pay our shillings to see. To be, And so this is all. To be convinced that exactly anything may be accomplished by training that is the cultivation of persistent habits. And the power of habit isn't seen in humans alone. She talks about cats who go in search of their dinner always at the same time and place. And and the dog is more a bundle of habits than its master. And birds also. You scatter the crumbs for the sparrows at 9 o'clock every morning. And at 9 o'clock they'll come for their breakfast. She talks about Darwin a little bit, but there was, there's the... Uh, the monkey one? Well, no, I was just thinking, is it the, the Pavlov? Pavlov's... Oh, ring the bell. Yeah, Pavlov did a bunch of experiments like that. That animals can be can be trained to a certain thing because they're creatures of habits. Ring the bell, give them food. Ring the bell, give them food. Ring the bell, give them food. Ring the bell, they and sa- they start salivating. And they start salivating because their body knows it's coming. There's a there's an office episode of that <laughs> where where Jim uh, trains Dwight with the windows sound. <laughs> yes. To want to mint. To want to mint. You know, he does the sound. Dwight, want a mint? <laughs> Dwight, want a mint? And so then he pushed the sound. And Dwight put his hand out. And Jim just looks at him like, what? And Dwight's like, so confused. Why Why is my hand? I, I don't. What just happened to me? And then, and then he goes, my mouth really does feel dry and, and gross right now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know how accurate that is for people. Probably very, but be, because we're all creatures of habit. Well, you were mentioning the other day about wanting food. And, you know, you're here at home, you walk in the kitchen, you want food. But when you're at work, you don't have that same location pull. That's true. And, and you, so you're not as hungry at work because... You're not in your kitchen where you make food and eat your food. Right. Yeah. Because at work, I eat one meal and that's all. So, yeah. No, it's, it's very true. Uh, we, we are absolutely creatures of habit and it, and it forces nature into new channels. That's, uh, that's, that's where Pavlov goes with his experiments is that it's not a dog's nature to salivate when the bell rings. Mm hmm. Um, what Darwin's talking about is transmitted habit, how the birds who were on islands that had never had man, they were fine by flying near him and right. being near him. And it's the the experiment that the, they did with monkeys where they had, they put bananas at the top of a pole. And any time that the monkey would try to go climb up, then they would, everyone could get shot with water or something like that. And so they would start stopping monkeys who would try to go up and get the banana. Oh, that's right. And eventually there were they would keep the bananas up there and all the monkeys in the cage had never been shot by water. And as soon as they introduce a new monkey in who tries to go and get the banana, everyone still pulls him down. 
even though none of them had been shot by the water. Mm-hmm. They had all just learned from each other. That's the transmitted habit. Yeah. Huh. And in the the book I'm listening to, The um, Oathbringer. By? Sa- Brandon Sanderson. That's a, that's a Brandon Sanderson book. And there's a story about him when uh, the, the main character, when he's learning how to be a knight or be a, uh, a warrior. And his his boss man or his his teacher is like okay you wrap it three times and you tie it tight and he's going this really hurts i don't want to tie it three times everyone else does it two times why do we do it three times and he's like i was taught this way and this is how it's done and so he finds his teacher's teacher it's like why why do we do this my teacher did why why do we do this found the teacher's teacher teacher's teacher stands up He's this really short squat man who's skinny. He's like, well, if I tied it twice, I would trip over it. Right. So I had to tie it. it was I had to tie it three times. Talking about tying his the belt on his gi so that, yeah, had to had to wrap it around his body so many times. Yeah. So. And the, the large burly man is like, well, screw that then. I'm just going to tie it twice. And then there's the, you know, the story of, you know, why do you always cut off the end of the hams at Christmas dinner? Mm. And you just always cut off the end of the ham. You go get back to great grandma and be like, it's because my pan wasn't big enough. <laughs> yeah, it had nothing to do with cooking technique. It was just, it. My pan wasn't big enough. Didn't fit. So. And, and now you've got three generations of people who cook a ham by cutting off the ends of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so habits are, are hugely important and they're, they're able to change your nature. So then she says, parents and children, no, parents and teachers must lay down the lines of habit. I guess I'm in the habit of saying parents and children. Yeah. She says, all this is nothing new. We've always known that use is second nature. And then back again, sorry to keep referencing parents and children, but she (laughs) references Thomas Akempis. And it was way back then that we knew that use is second nature. But it's it's not the fact but the application of the fact and the physiology of habit, which were new and exceedingly valuable ideas to me. She said, this is, this is my epiphany. I've now walked you through where I got it, how it works, and why it's so important to me. She says, I hope, I hope these thoughts may be of some use to the reader. It was new to me, for instance, to perceive that it rests with parents and teachers to lay down lines of habit on which the life of the child may run henceforth with little jolting or miscarriage and may advance in the right direction with a minimum of effort. And laying down the rails is, is another terminology thing. Mm -hmm. There's a, I think it's simply Charlotte Mason who puts out a laying down the rails curriculum where Uh it's a, how, how do you habit train? How do you work through all of this stuff that she's about to get into? And, I've heard it's really good. I've not looked into it, but I've heard it's really good. So if you're looking for some curriculum on habit training, go check that out. Yeah. Because apparently it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that, that laying down the rails. You know, if, if, if you've got those lines dug deep in the brain, if you've got this track set, they'll just keep going on that yeah. track. And it will take effort to vary from it. Right. Not effort to do it. Not to stay in the track. 
Yeah, no, it's it it's very true. Well, and so next week we are going to start talking about, she says, uh, chapter five is the laying down the lines of habit. And so we're actually going to start talking about how to lay down those lines. And then we'll talk about the physiology of habit as well, chapters four, five and six. So I'm excited to get into those also now that we know why habits are so important. So the interesting part is, or thing, the interesting thing is part three is talking about what a habit is. And we part four is also habits. And it goes into which habits and what they are. Yeah, part part three, I, I get the feeling is more of why habits and part four is more how, why, I why, guess. I think it's I why know. and how. I think part three is why and how. I mean, we're going to get there. And then part four is what. Oh, what specific and, and Application, how. thinking, yeah. imagining, remembering, perfect execution, and some moral habits. Well, I am excited to continue to get to those. This is this has been fun reading through this book. It's it's interesting to see her how just how uh just how entwining her philosophy is in the words that she's writing in home education here. So I asked you this question earlier, I guess a couple days ago. Yeah, because we made the mistake of talking before we, we were did. recording. It was a terrible mistake. Yeah. Horrible, so, terrible mistake. Anyways. So I asked you the question of, are you glad we read Parents and Children first? So let me ask you again. Are you glad we read Parents and Children first? <laughs> so my answer then and my answer now is absolutely yes. And and the reason is is twofold. One, because of what I just said. Because the philosophy that she presents in Parents and Children is so prevalent in the pages of home education. Everything is based on that philosophy. And and we see that in the way that you referenced parents and children so many times in these last couple chapters. Mm-hmm. Is it's it's so important. It's fundamental to what she's saying. And so one, I'm very glad that I have that as a base knowledge as we're diving into this so that I understand why she's saying what she's saying and where she's coming from. So that what she's saying makes perfect sense within that within that conceptual idea and philosophy. So that's the one side. The other side of it is I'm glad we went through parents and children because it got me accustomed to her her method and mode of speaking and writing. Mm-hmm. it It helped me it helped me read her work and understand her words. Uh, something I said when we were wrapping up parents and children, we did a recap of the principles, principles, however many there are. And and we recapped them. And I remember saying, hey, when we first started this, I tried to read through these and they made no sense. One, because I didn't understand what she was talking about. And two, I just I couldn't I couldn't understand her writing. Mm-hmm. So her principles made no sense. When we got to the end of the book and went through her principles again, I went, oh, yeah, these make perfect sense. Because I understand her philosophy, but also I'm used to listening to her talk. Mm-hmm. And so as we're diving into this, I'm not having to work so hard at her language. There are times when it still stumps me. As we saw. As we saw a couple times. But that's the that's the exception more than the rule at this point. I've grown accustomed to her method of speaking. And I think that's 
that is that has been super helpful for me to accustom myself to the way that she talks because she doesn't talk like we talk now. Mm-hmm. They're the hundred and hundred and thirty years has changed a lot and going from England to the United States. So yeah, I'm well, very I'm very glad that we started in Parents and Children the way we did. And and Parents and Children is a collection of essays meant to do they build on each other but they are still a cohesive thought within that chapter. Right. So it's it's easier to get a I feel it's easier to get the flow without having all of the little chapter headings that you necessarily do in right. in home education, where you still have the headings, but they're the headings are more paragraph breaks than anything. Yeah, yeah. Home education is not laid out as neatly as parents and children is, which we found out when we were trying to label our, our episodes. Yeah, yeah. Like, is this chapter one? Chap- Wait, what? Yeah, our episode labeling is is crap. <laughs> well, it's it's terrible because it the book's labeling is yeah crap. I know <laughs> <laughs> so you can't just go chapter one you have to go part one chapter one yeah so yeah so no I'm I'm very glad we started with with parents and children and to to anyone out there listening who has a hard time with her language the the best I can say is just keep reading. Mm-hmm. And if you can find someone to talk about it with, I think that's the other important thing is to to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't find anything anyone to talk about it with, I I guess listen to us. Talk about it with us, right? Or listen to us. Listen talk to about us it. Us talk or yell at us as you think we're saying things that are wrong. Yeah. Cool. Well, like always, thanks for hanging out. Uh, if you enjoy what we're doing, if you like listening to us. Find someone that you know that doesn't know about us and tell them about our show. Um, and if there's anyone you guys want to hear from so we can have more guests, let me know because I would love to invite people. Right, because that is still a thing that we're super excited to do. Like I said, we had Kara on our show from L- at Letters to Lyra on Instagram last week, and that was a lot of fun to talk to her. As we dive into habits and as we dive into lessons crystal and i are not at all experts on lessons we have five more guests lined up right now that is exciting love to have more right because if we if we have guests then we can (laughs) then we can learn from someone else's experience if we don't it's just going to be us reading through and be like oh that's what we should do huh interesting yep so yeah, let us know. Uh, you can hit us up on our email. You can email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter. Oh, I don't remember our Twitter. I think it's CM underscore says. At CM underscore says. On Facebook. I think that one's just slash CM says. Slash CM says. And I don't even know what our Instagram handle is off, off the top of my head. I think it's actually Charlotte Mason says. Is it Charlotte Mason says on Instagram? Wow, we're really good at this social media thing. I yeah, we should have double checked and made sure we could get the same one everywhere. We weren't able to was the problem. Yeah, but we should have found one that could have worked everywhere. Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if we were older? Because then we wouldn't have to wait so long. Thank you for listening. 
Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thank you.